Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast, and our first installment of Veterans Forum, where we feature unscripted conversations with men and women who have served in the military, and we talk about basically anything having to do with their time served. Our first interview is with Bobby Randall, who did multiple tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, first as a U.S. Marine, and then multiple tours in Afghanistan with the U.S. Army. He shares some memories and insights into military life that I think you'll find enjoyable and interesting. So I'm Bobby Randall, uh, 37, been in the military since I was 18, since uh, 2001, since August of 2001, you know, pre-towers falling. But the reason why I got in the military is because where I'm from, there's not a whole lot of job opportunities. I'm from a small town in California. You either either end up in a gang, you end up on a farm, or you end up dead in the street. So uh, I wanted to get out of my town and join the Marine Corps in 2001. And then spent time, uh, I was in the Marine Corps from 2001 to 2005, and then... Where were you in 2001 when the when the towers fell? So uh, when I was, so I went to boot camp in MCRD San Diego in 2001 and August 6th. And uh, when the towers fell, I was actually, we were on swim qual week. And, you know, we had just come out of the pool. And one of our, one of the recruits, name is Marazzo. In the Marine Corps, if you break a handguard when you know you're doing your drill movements and you show intensity that you pop off a handguard or you break a handguard, the drill instructors at that time they would reward you with like a Big Mac or you know a, you know a burger and a, you know, the drink of your choice like a Mountain Dew or something like that, and and a two minute phone call home because back then you know cell phones weren't a big thing. So Marazzo he broke his handguard that morning, so he got his two minute phone call, and this is I want to say. He called at about, I want to say about one in the afternoon and we're in there cleaning the bathroom and uh, he went out and did his two minute phone call and he came back in and he's yelling and screaming and he's like, did you hear about it? Did you hear about it? We're like, what are you talking about? Um, I just got the phone with my mom, the, the World Trade Centers, they got bombed. And we all thought it was, you know, his mom being crazy because he was crazy. And, um, and so we all just laughed at him and everything. And then a couple hours later, we're out drilling on the, on the parade field and then you know, our drill instructors, our drill instructor told us to come to him. So, you know, we got around him in a school circle and, uh, he goes, um, did y'all hear about what happened in New York? We're like, yeah, the world trade centers got bombed and everybody started laughing. Cause you know, by then we'd already been making fun of Marazzo for it. He goes, no, actually someone, uh, some jackass threw a, uh, flew a plane into him. Uh, who's got family in New York. Cause you got to make sure that they're still alive. And that's when we're like, wait, what? And then all of a sudden we started seeing drill instructors, you know, full kit, you know, the, Kevlar and flak vests, and we've been there for you know a little about a month now, and that wasn't normal. And uh, and they're walking, they're walking around with loaded rifles and stuff like that. And, and we're talking about drill instructors, not just you know the the guard and stuff, but no drill instructors and stuff like that. We're walking around with this stuff, and you know it, we're like, this really happened, and we're only allowed to really get the news on Sundays and in the morning after breakfast chow. You come out of breakfast chow. And they're selling newspaper. They were selling newspapers there for fifty cents, and you could buy a newspaper. And we, uh, a bunch of us, bought newspapers, and we were reading them. And there was the pictures of you know the towers on fire and everything. Um, yeah, in some ways, it's kind of like Pearl Harbor, where America is attacked. Or uh, in yeah. this case, it was a, it was a, it turned out to be the city. It turned out to be the Pentagon. Yeah, and then, it, but like I said, all, the only thing we really knew at that time was uh, that the towers fell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had no clue. Um, about anything else that was going on at the time. Granted, there was a bunch of other stuff that was going on at the time because, you know, we had the, what was it? 
while I was in boot camp, uh, the Pentagon admitted that they lost all the trillions of dollars the day before the towers fell. And then Aaliyah, the singer, she died while, while I was in boot camp. And then, uh, it didn't really, I mean, you could, where MCRD San Diego is it, the only thing that separates the Marine Corps recruit depot and the airport, the San Diego airport is a chain link fence. That's it. You could literally see freedom flying over your head every day. And you can see the interstate and uh, SeaWorld down the street. You can see the fireworks when, you know, usually they only did them for special occasions. But because of 9-11, they were firing them off every night and we were seeing it. And we were seeing flags on every vehicle driving across the interstate and stuff like that. It was crazy. We saw all the planes get grounded um, you know, from our barracks. And we, it was crazy. I didn't, it didn't hit me until after I got out of boot camp that the towers fell until November when I got out. And my dad, he knew that I was, uh, that I wasn't gonna be able to, you know, watch a lot of this stuff. So he, um, he recorded a lot of it. And I sat down. I must have sat down for, gosh, eighteen, nineteen hours just going over all the videos that my dad recorded of it, so that I could watch it in one sitting. And, I mean, I went into boot camp, and you know, we weren't at war. I come out of boot camp, and it's a whole different country. It was a whole different country, and it wasn't the same country that I went, you know, I went into. And it was, you know, going on any after that, going on any military installation at that time, because I went from MCRD San Diego to uh, Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, to you know, go to you know my MOS school and stuff like that. And each part of Camp Lejeune, when you're going into a new part of Camp Lejeune, is all it's all on base, it's all one base, but because you know there's a lot of military training stuff it's big it's huge and in order to go to one place to another usually you just drive there, you know and there's no checkpoints no nothing but at that time there was checkpoints everywhere and you know i thought it was a normal and they're like no this isn't normal this is all because of you know 9-11 we have to do multiple checkpoints and stuff like that so a lot of things change i mean looking back almost 20 years later it's all calmed down again but that was crazy. That was a crazy time. It was one thing you'll, you know, you'll never forget. I mean, my recruiter said, oh yeah, when you go to, when you go to the Marine Corps, yeah, it's just like a nine to five job, except you wake up a little earlier to go run. But other than that, you know, we're never going to go, we're not going to go back to war. We haven't been to war since 91 and this and that. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. You know, nine to five and I get college and then come out of boot camp and different you know totally different world not just country but world when uh, when you received your orders where did you head for um so the first deployment i did was in 2003 to iraq um that was during the initial push are you allowed to say what division you were with yeah or? i was with the second combat engineer uh, battalion uh the second marine division um out of camp lejeune um let's see it was a, it was a joint. It was like the, it was the first time that both first combat engineer battalion and second combat engineer battalion deployed together, because uh, it's separated into regions. You know the uh, Tumar Div or Second Marine Division. They control a certain part of the country, uh, world. You know, or not control, but they patrol a certain part of the world. When something pops up over there, they're the ones that deploy. And same thing with First Marine Division. They're on, they're in California, and when something pops up in there region they deploy but it iraq was supposed to be a first marine division area of operation and but because of the scale that they wanted to use 
both combat engineer battalions got deployed in. It wasn't just, you know, it was the whole first and second Marine division. Plus the army was there. The air force was there. Um, we got there Valentine's day of 2003. And, uh, I mean, 19 years old, I was scared. I'm like, well, actually I was about to turn 20 right before we, I turned 20 in Iraq, but, uh, I remember, oh, we were scared. We couldn't have, you know, we couldn't smoke. And I'm a, I'm a, I've been a smoker since I was 15, you know, and you know, we had to come up with the innovative ways to smoke. You know, we had to, you know, um, our magazines, there's like a little slip on the back to, to where you pull out the spring to clean it and stuff like that. Well, we take the, the spring out and just move it and put our cigarette there <laughs> and close the lip so it'd hold it. And that's how we would smoke. So that, you know, that, you know, our gunnery sergeant and stuff like that couldn't see us, you know, smoking. <laughs> and um, we're like, okay, we're here, but we don't know if we're going to go. So we got bored because we got, like I said, we got there in February and the war didn't kick off like another month and a half. And it was just, it was just desert. That was all. You know, we did training and then we were bored. So it was a tent city? Uh, yeah. Oh, gosh, yes. Oh, gosh, yes. Um, and then, uh, so me and my buddy Mo. We and my buddy Kevin, we all got bored one day, and the, the only the only phone that we had to communicate back to the world was uh, uh, the satellite phone that you know the battalion talk had. So, and everybody got a chance. You know, each company rotated through, and you know if they wanted to make a phone call, you know, five minute phone call to the family, let them know that they're alive and this and that. You know, see how they're doing and stuff. Uh, they could. So, um, my buddy Mo went and made a phone call. And then after that, we got the bright idea to to spread a rumor that J Lo died, Jennifer Lopez died coming out of the gravities and got hit by a drunk driver, and uh, um, Ben Affleck was in uh, critical condition because at this time Ben Affleck and J Jennifer Lopez were dating, and uh, and we were just talking about it in the bathroom, you know, in the showers while we were showering and stuff, and uh, it spread like wildfire. I mean, we're just because you know there's no real communication. I mean, I had a staff sergeant in my unit that uh, built a shrine outside his little tent <laughs> to Jennifer Lopez, and he was crying. And so, and by the time you know we actually reached Baghdad, not only had it switched branches because we had army people telling us this that she died and he got hit by a drunk driver, and it just got more elaborate as it went on, but it also switched directions because the army that was the, the the unit in the army that was telling us this came actually from the north and we were just laughing because you know oh really oh yeah i didn't hear about that <laughs> and we were the ones that started it um but it was i mean that was one of the funny memories that i have from from 03 i mean uh, it was that and the day that they said we won the war and we could take off our, we could take our gas mask off our hip because so i was on the gun turret and we we're on the outskirts of baghdad and uh i just Took off my gas mask from where I was standing and threw it because <laughs> I was I was tired of it. I mean, because the first night um, that the, the night before the war kicked off, um, this is when they did the the bombing campaign on you know you know when our air force went and bombed them, and uh, Iraq fired Scud missiles over us, and so it was like every fifteen minutes we were getting you know air raid siren. Because the Scud missiles, we didn't. Uh, I guess they had um, like uh, chemical agents in them and stuff like that. And so we were getting air raid sirens to don our gas masks and stuff like that. And uh, we were already in full mop suit and mop suit, especially in the desert, is not fun. 
at all because you're already, it's already hot and then you're in this charcoal sweatsuit just dying but um so it got to the point where you know that you would don your gas mask and then all clear would come around and then you go back to sleep before you know because you still have to do watch and stuff like that and then another half hour later and the air raid siren go back off and you're so you wake back up put your gas mask on and then go back to try to go back to sleep and then you know 15 minutes later they're all clear it got to the point where a bunch of us just said screw it and just kept our gas mask on went right back to sleep and then uh you know we woke up in the morning across the you know early early morning across the lod the line of departure and you know blew our lines and went in um that was you see a lot of big men there uh, like you know I had this one E five sergeant big as a, you know, big as a door. I mean, he was just, he, he was big. He, you know, he was like six foot five and, you know, built like a brick house. And he was just, you know, because he was always in the gym and whatnot. And, uh, we started crossing over the bridges and stuff. And all of a sudden, you know, we started taking pop shots. Uh, so we started getting, you know, at, it wasn't, well, at first it started out as pop shots and then it was continuous fire. What were you, what were you in Tra- tanks at that? No, point? no. Uh, we were in the back of a, of a truck. Okay. Um, so, but we were facing out. So we had, because we had the tarp over the top of us, but we had a jungle roll to where the, the, the sides of the tarp were up. So we held, you know, we had sandbags and boxes of grenades and claim and, uh, uh, C4 and stuff like that that we sat on and faced out. So as the, the you know, as the firefight started, this E5, I'm not going to say his name because, you know, I don't want to humiliate him because I don't know if he's watching this. And if you are, I'm sorry. But uh, <laughs> he, he freaked out and dove in be- because there was, I mean, he dove in between us and, uh, and because there was two rows facing out and there was a space where we had stuff, you know, uh, we had our MREs and stuff like that um, stacked. And he dove in between everybody because he was just freaking out. And, uh, and when you're taking fire, and, and it's the first time, I would imagine all of us would have a fear. You're gonna, you're hoping training kicks in. It and did. You're gonna uh, for move most past of us. it because you got a bunch of guys who are dependent on you mm-hmm. to keep it all in one piece. And it, uh, for most of us, it did. I mean, immediate is you know immediate kick in. It's just bam. All right, time time to go to war. You know, Marine kicked in, and. uh I mean, that was the first time I've ever been fired at. I mean, I've, I've heard gunshots, you know, most of my life and seen a lot of messed up stuff because, you know, where I'm from. Um, but I think that was the scariest I've ever been in my whole entire life. But also the most adrenaline I've ever felt. Yeah. And it was, I don't know. And now I'm older now, so I don't try to look for that adrenaline. But I did when I was younger, I, you know, only jump out of airplanes you know all kinds of stuff you know you go skydive I, I mean heck when we got back my buddy and mo and myself machado we went skydiving like shoot, we hadn't been back in country for more than two months and we went skydiving because <laughs> just trying to get that feeling back yeah yeah, yeah. and then uh so uh, we stayed in iraq until you know the war ended and then i volunteered to stay back to help clean all the equipment to send it all back what happened in Baghdad when you were when you were taking fire at that time? How long did you stay in there, and what did you guys? What in Baghdad? Yeah. So when we got to Baghdad, so by the time we got to Baghdad, um, yes, there was an initial firefight, but for the most part, it was over um, because Saddam spread rumors that in order to be in the Marine Corps, um, you had to kill your mother. So they they feared us. Sounds like the Japs back in World War Two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, they so they feared us. Um, 
so we either ran into um, like a mass surrender we, because we ran into a lot of surrenders and then uh, or, you know, we, we ran into a couple of firefights and stuff like that because I remember, you know, the couple of days before crossing the LOD watching these little uh, bongo trucks just driving around in the dirt, just tossing mines out in the field, like out on the ground where we were getting ready to go. And, you know, as combat engineers, that was our job was to go and clear those. And uh, it was because they feared Marines. How did you clear a mine back in those days? With a stick. <laughs> oh, found one. That was it. And then, you know, and then uh, and then you had specialists come in and blow them and stuff like that. But Or, you know, when we found weapons caches and stuff like that, we'd blow them. But um, as we start, as we moved further north towards Baghdad, um, there was a town. I can't remember the name of the town, but they stopped us. the The, the populace did, and said that there was uh, big bombs underneath the school. And you know, we were combat engineer battalion, so not only did we have did we do deal with explosives, but we also had uh, construction stuff. Uh, we had D sevens and D nines. You know, big old tractors looking bulldozers, um, and uh, so. We're like, okay, so what do you want us to do? We're like, oh, it's underneath, it's underneath. So we went and we dug it up, and we, because our interpreter was, he was also marine, but he sp- he spoke um, the language, and he was like, yeah, they're saying it's right there. So we stayed there for four days and tore up a school. Come to find out, the kids just didn't want to go to school anymore. Um, <laughs> but uh, we poured a, a lot of uh, a lot of money and resources into a number of countries over there. Did you? Were you there long enough to see a lot of that happen? And do you think the money was well spent? Uh, yes and no. I, I think I think we stayed there too long because um, we're not an occupying force. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, The United States military has never been one for being an occupying force. Uh, that's just not what we're based on. Uh, we're based on you know winning wars. Um, but once you start becoming a police force, it drastically dwindles down. You know our fighting capabilities because that's not what we are. We're not a police force. Um, I did. I, I think we stayed there too long. I think we dumped uh, too much money into it and what it allowed it to do, what allowed, what, what made Iraq so bad was it wasn't the war itself. The war, we should have just gone in, kicked butt and pulled out. That's what we should have done. But what ended up happening is we got in, we went in, kicked butt and then stayed and occupied. Like I said, we're not an occupying force. We're a foreign occupying force that has that the populace does not agree with due to religious reasons, and it allowed other bad actors to come in because Americans were there and you know take pop shots at them and shoot them, kill them. I mean, like that Russian sniper that Chris Kyle shot. Um, he wasn't there for the war. He was there to kill Americans. I mean. He wasn't there for Russia. He was just there because you know he wanted to kill Americans. I think actually, I think he was Chechnya or something. What do you like know that. about that story? Not a whole lot. Um, I know you know when he saved a bunch of my friends, <laughs> so because um, he killed the the ice factory. Because in two thousand five, we were in we were outside of uh, Ramadi at a fob called Blue Diamond, and uh, we had a was it a ice. Factory, I think it was an ice factory down the, you know, up the road, and uh, we had a sniper there. And he, I mean, at our back gate, he would. It was like every other day we were, you know, under sniper fire, and uh, 
if I remember correctly, he was the one that took him out. Um, I just remember seeing the seals come in because we worked the the entry control point at that point, and uh, we saw seals coming in, and we're like, "Oh, cool! Yay, seals!" Because um, even in the Marine Corps, seals are still you know cool. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> they are. I mean, so there's still somebody you guys can look up at, right? And say, "Well, these guys are doing their job too, mm-hmm. right?" Yeah, Delta Force, Special Forces, uh, Marine Corps has uh, their own, um, you know, Special Forces type units. Uh, you know, the recon, uh, re- recon units, um, air force. I think they have one. I don't know what they do. I had to ask my brother and he'd probably know more about it, but I think they're like, uh, like fire and rescue. Like they, you know, if a down plane, if a plane goes down behind enemy lines, they're the ones that go in and try to save them. I think that's the air force's equivalent to their type of special forces. What was Ramadi like? And what was your responsibility there? Um, so like I said, we were there, uh, working the entry control point. We were there to guard the base. Um, and we just, we were making sure that the, the ECP or EC, uh, entry control point, you know, stayed active. And, uh, we went on a couple missions, uh, you know, whenever we took mortar fire, we'd have to go out and do mortar analysis. If it landed outside the pod, um, uh, we were the ones that when we did get attacked, we were the ones that, you know, were firing back because we were the ones that were manning the towers and stuff like that, which happened quite often. Um, we were also the ones that were reporting out, you know, if we did see a flash before a boom, you know, we were reporting out the, the, you know, where it came from and stuff like that. When you fired back, what were you firing with? It all depended on the situation. Uh, it also depended on where we were at. If we were at the ECP, we were firing with everything we had because usually that means is a vehicle borne, uh, uh, IED. And, uh, so, you know, we had the, that's where we had the 50 cal and the, the, you know, our, you know, our, that's where we had all most of our firepowers at the entry control points. Um, you know, and, the, but that was always where people tried to blow stuff up. You, you, you said once what the locals were like, what was pretty much your experience? Were there times when you saw stuff that would just, when you maybe saw kids or, or something else that would just kind of Really break your heart in yes. terms of oh, situation. Gosh, yes. Oh gosh, yes. Because um, we always had like soccer balls and teddy bears and stuff like that to hand out to the kids. Um, especially in you know 2005 and on. Uh, you know, 2005 was my second deployment, and uh, we had you know there would always be kids coming up to the entry control point, and we'd talk to them. And <clears throat> our Terp, he was he used to be in Saddam's army, but. Um, he left Saddam's army because something happened with his family. Like Saddam did something bad. To one of it to, he wouldn't really talk about it. Yeah, he was a local, but he was nice as uh, I still remember him. <laughs> you know, in 2005, that was 15 years ago. I still remember what he looks like. He, we called him Kniffy because um, he said the Americans pronounced pronounced the word knife wrong. He said it's pronounced Kniffy. So, because <laughs> of how it's spelt. And uh, so we called him Kniffy from then on. And uh, he taught us a lot about the culture and stuff like that. And, you know, I didn't, you know, a lot of stuff we didn't know. But whenever we give him like a, whenever we give the kids a soccer ball or um, uh, we had humanitarian rations, you know, we would hand out to the, you know, to the families and stuff like that. And it always brought a smile because a lot of them, you know, you know, as, you know, opposition forces started moving in and taking over towns and stuff like that, they didn't they took all the supplies for themselves and pretty much left the populace hungry. 
Um, and the only way that they could make money and stuff like that was to, you know, bury an IED or fire off a mortar and run and hopefully the Americans didn't catch you. And then, you know, the you know, opposition forces would pay them for doing stuff like that. And that's how they had to make their money. It wasn't that they, that they hated us. It's just they were poor. They were hungry. And they were thinking about their family, um, you know, burying an IED. Yeah, that comes with a lot of risk, but you might be able to feed your family for five days. And that that broke my heart because you know, and there was nothing I could do about it. I mean, I don't know. It's it's sad that they were put in that position when they had no control over it. it you know, they didn't, they didn't ask for the government that they got. They didn't ask to be, you know, invaded. They didn't ask to be, you know, occupied like we were, like we did for so long. And I understand why eventually they just wanted us out. After we took Baghdad, there was a huge void. Uh, we were still there, but there was no law. Yep. It was just wild. I mean, people yes. were robbing the museums. Yep. I mean, things were just... What Were you there during that time? Yes, what I was, was there like? when we... like. A lot of them were actually happy because a lot of people had... Um, you know, their families in one of Saddam's places where they got mustard gas and stuff like that. So they really didn't like the ruling party there. Um, and when, you know, the war ended and everything and we were driving through Baghdad and stuff like that. And, you know, they were tearing down statues of Saddam. They were, um, in fact, that's the one of the most famous ones. That was a buddy of mine that actually, you know, one of my buddies was there. Or, you know, was had the chains hooked up and actually helped them pull the statue down. Um, they were breaking up, uh, the murals that have Saddam's face on them. They were, uh, whenever we left like one of his palaces or something like that, um, they would, you know, whenever the, we would pull out, they, there would be a mass of people outside, you know, from the local populace, just ready to, you know, as soon as Americans pull out, you know, they gave them the oh, go ahead to just go in. And, you know, and that's what they did. They went and raided everything that Saddam had because, you know, he took so much from the people and, Fixtures, like, tile, everything. Everything. Right? I mean, he had golden sinks. He had golden toilets. He had. Um, there was one place that had uh, like wild game that he had imported in, so he could shoot it. And 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 then uh, there was like a big old bar that had every because liquor was mostly illegal in Iraq at that time, and he had every type of liquor you could think of from around the world. And we're like, you know, yeah. I mean, what do we do with this? I don't know. I don't know. But uh, I mean, because but alcohol was easy to get there. Um, cigarettes were easy to get there, but you didn't want to smoke them. But we didn't know that at the time, in '03, because um, come to find out, the cigarettes that we were you know, we were buying off the locals and uh, smoking ended up having I think it was like forty percent human feces in them, and we didn't know that. So they're like, "Oh, stop smoking those," and we've been smoking them for like two months. <laughs> didn't know. <laughs> yeah, did, no those have, did those have a name uh blue sumers blue sumers blue sumers yep um and but like i said you can get alcohol anywhere and it got to the point where every you know marines that's what we do we drink that's what the marine corps is known for so is you know the navy and the army we'll return to our interview right after this message from our sponsor and now back to our show we were Let's see, where were we? We were in Diwania. And uh, this was after the war was over. And, you know, we were getting ready to um, pull out and stuff like that. But we still had supply trains coming up. And uh, we are in Diwania getting ready to go back to Kuwait. And 
we had this E8 got drunk. I mean, got hammered the night before and uh, got on top of a truck and uh, elbow dropped the command sergeant major's pop-up tent. Granted, the command sergeant major wasn't in it, but it was but it was late at night. But he was just in a meeting, and but this you know this E eight got so hammered that he thought it was a good idea to jump on a truck and elbow drop a you know command sergeant major's little pop up tent, and he was shipped home. And then the very next day, they made us dump out all our alcohol, and we weren't allowed to have alcohol anymore. We we're like, that was it. yep, that was it. All it took was an E eight. <laughs> And but you know, and Diwania, I mean, we we ended up getting our hands on a projector, and uh, you know there was a chow hall set up, and they brought in a little PX for the line, but the line for the PX was, you would send people to sit in your spot while you went and watched, while you went and did guard for four hours, and then you would go stand in the spot while they went and did guard for four hours, and you would still only be like halfway through the line, um, <laughs> it was bad, but. Um, so we, you know, we had a projector and they would bring in movies and stuff like that. They would buy off the local populace and, you know, they're bringing sodas every now and again and ice and stuff like that for us to eat. And we go to eat the defect or the little chow hall thing that they had set up. But all the Marines were there except for the Marines that were coming up. <clears throat> so every Marine that was in country was in Dionia. And then, uh, it was, it was crazy, it, but it was fun. Cause you know, I, I got to see guys I hadn't seen since boot camp and, you know, cause they were deployed there. I mean, I went to boot camp with a with a friend of mine from high school. His name was Chris. Um, him and I went to boot camp together and MCT together. And then, you know, I went to the East Coast. He went to the West Coast. And uh, he showed up out of nowhere. And he was like, hey, what's going on? I was like, ah! So, we, you know, we hung out. And we actually got to catch up, you know, because it had been a couple of years since we'd seen each other. But we saw each other in Iraq. You know, I haven't seen him since high school or since boot camp, actually. And, you know, we met up again in Iraq, and I thought that was pretty, you know, pretty cool. And, you know, just, you don't expect something like that. And I saw a couple of my buddies from boot camp. They showed up there, and, you know, I just kind of, like, ran into them in, like, the PX line or at the DFAC or Chow Hall or whatever. Branch, every branch has a, their own name for and There was a situation, <clears throat> I think, with Fallujah. So where, where the Marines at one point, uh, I guess we had either had to back out or or we lost it. I don't know which. The Army lost it and sent the Marines in. And then sent the Marines in. So the Marines said, we're going <clears> to <throat> take it back. Were you involved in that? Or if not, do you know what the story was there? Because there was supposed to be a movie out about that. I don't know if it ever made it. Um, so in 2004, I was on uh, to deploy to Iraq. It was a volunteer basis. And uh, me and my buddy Mo who, you know, we went to boot camp together, we went to MCT together, we went to school together, and we hit the fleet together. Um, and we even went to war together in 03. Um, it, we were on the list to go, and at that time, uh, I think it was about a month and a half before we were getting ready to ship out, I met my wife. <clears throat> I didn't know she was, was going to be my wife, but I met my wife, and uh, my buddy Mo said, hey, let me take this one. You, uh, um, you know, there's something here. This, this was the first time Mo liked any of my girlfriends. Any, but and, and Mo was that was my best friend, and I was like, okay, well, I mean, you sure? I'll go. No, no, you got something here. You need to stay with her. I like her. I, I think she'd be good for you. I was like, all right. And then uh, uh, he went, and that was in '04, and 
And this was back when we had Instant Messenger and stuff like that. When the Yahoo Instant Messenger and AIM and all that other stuff. It wasn't really cell phones and stuff like that yet, like there is now. Um, but I, you know, I was talking to him on Instant Messenger. And then, uh, in fact, he was even talking to my wife because we were engaged at that point. And so she was talking to him, too. And, uh, you know, he was saying, hey, I'm going out on mission. Uh, I'll be back. And when I get back, I'll, you know, I am you. And then... Uh, as last time anybody talked to him, old on the state side, um, ended up dying that day, and it was like a, it was literally a week before he turned twenty one, and he was still in the process of becoming a, a, an American citizen, so he was getting ready to take the test, you know, once he got back to become an American citizen. So, because he was, you know, they came up from Mexico, he had his green card and stuff like that, and uh, that that. It must have rocked you. It was the only time that that I wasn't with him. I mean, and you know what happened? I do. Um, I think I do. Uh, they said that uh, there was an explosion. Uh, his and his Humvee caught loose sand, and uh, it flipped, and he was in the back of it, and you know there was no cover on it, and the way that it landed. It just landed on top of him and cut him in half. Um, and that was, like I said, that was a, that was a week before he turned uh, 21. So he didn't even get to legally drink. And he went and died for a country that he wasn't fully a part of yet. And, and that, like I said, that was, that was 16 years ago uh, coming up. I'm sure you've seen whatever movies or documentaries have been made about uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. Yes. How often do you think they get it right and, <clears throat> and how often not? Um, and which ones do you think got it right? The one that came closest was Restrepo. Was what? Restrepo. Um, Restrepo was an outpost in Afghanistan. Um, I think it was. I think it's on Netflix now, but uh, military personnel, they, they, most of them know that movie. It's just one of those movies that, you know, we know um, that that was that's what parts of Afghanistan looked like. And when I went to Afghanistan and let's see, I went to let's see, I went back to Iraq when I joined the army. So you were Marines on your first yes tour of duty, and then I got out. You know, I got out of the Marine Corps because my wife said, you know, you know, either her or the Marine Corps because Marine Corps it's it's country or it's Marine Corps, God. Family. Right. In that order. Yeah. Marine Corps, God, family. Family, if they wanted you to have a wife, they would have issued you it. Yeah. And that, and that, that's that's just, that was the mentality of the Marine Corps back then. And, um, Chesty Puller, I think, was the yes first Yes, sir. One. And then, Good night, uh, Chesty, wherever you are. I said, I still say that. And I've been out of the Marine Corps since 2005. Um, but, uh, so I got out of the Marine Corps because I love my wife. You know, we had just, we had just got together. Just found out she was pregnant, and I realized, for me, raising a family in Marine Corps just wasn't it. So I moved back home, and I uh, didn't want to get out of the military because I loved the military. Um, I was young and dumb while I was in the Marine Corps, so I did a lot of dumb stuff. Um, but when I got out, you know, I went back home to my little farm town in California and worked on a farm and joined the National Guard. I did the National Guard for about nine months and was like, okay, this isn't cutting it. And 
told my wife, hey, I'm, I'm not going to go back in the Marine Corps, but I want to go back into the Army. Yeah. And she goes, okay. So I went back into the Army and, uh, and you know, after after only being out of the Marine Corps for nine months and went to Fort Drum, New York, I spent a little, not that much time in I'm Fort Drum. i Fort Drum, yeah. Uh, that place is too cold. Mm-mm. I lasted about a year and a half there. Mountain, uh, mountain division. Mm-hmm. Tenth Mountain. But uh, I got there right after the unit that I went to deployed, so I didn't get a, I didn't get to deploy with them. And I, like I said, I lasted about a year and a half there. Um, and then they're asking for, for people to go to Fort Lee. And I was like, I'll, I'll go to Fort Lee. Cause my wife, you know, she's from, she's from here. She's from Virginia. She was born and raised in Norfolk. And, uh, so, <clears throat> so we went to Fort Lee, which is, you know, an hour and a half away. So she could see her parents and stuff like that. And we were at Fort Lee for five years and fi- Fort Lee, when you think Fort Lee, you don't really think. So you were army reserve at this point. No, I was active duty. Active army. duty. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but when you think Fort Lee, you don't really think, you know, fighting force. You don't really think, uh, uh, you know, deployments and stuff like that. But I did, you know, I did two deployments out of Fort Lee. Uh, one in 2009 and 10, uh, we went to Iraq and, you know, we just out, we went to a bunch of outlining fobs and was setting up and helping out with the fobs and stuff like that. Uh, not really doing a lot, you know, just making sure, checking up on, you know. Um, and then, in, so I got back in 2010. Uh, uh, Thanksgiving Day. So I've been in the military for 19, coming up on 20 years, and I have never missed a Thanksgiving, ever. No matter how many times I've been employed, I have never missed a Thanksgiving. My wife calls it her curse. Because <laughs> <laughs> she always has to cook. Because that's my favorite holiday, so I made sure to always try to be back the best I could. So you've had two deployments overseas? or I've had four. Four deployments overseas. Uh, three to Iraq, one in Afghanistan. Wow. Um, so I got back from... Iraq Thanksgiving Day of 2010, and then you just had a time to write. Yeah, literally. Um, and then uh, the, uh, I moved to a new unit at Fort Lee because my unit was shutting down, and uh, they were asking for volunteers. And I was, you know, and I'd only been back for this was like middle of January of 2011, and I was like, I'll, I'll go. So I got back and, you know, I got after I got back off of leave, you know, they sent me over to the new unit and they're like, hey, you know, who wants to volunteer? And I raised my hand because I had a couple of buddies that were volunteering to go. And they're like, OK, uh, all right, go. And then uh, my wife wasn't happy about it because as soon as I got back, I went immediately into workups, you know, you know, training and making sure that our unit was qualified to, you know, go do the missions and stuff like that. And um I left in, let's see, June 1st. Left June 1st of 2011. So I hadn't even been back a full six, seven months. And I was already, you know, in, you know, going, flying to Afghanistan. And we've touched down in Afghanistan. And this command sergeant major, sergeant major Gory, he comes out. And he goes, all right, who's been to Iraq? And, you know, a couple of us raise our hands and, you know, thinking, you know, cocky, you know, I've been to Iraq. How many times have you been to Iraq? Three. How many times have you been to Iraq? One. How many times, you know, he goes, all right. How many of you have been to Afghanistan? Nobody raised their hand because Afghanistan at that time, you know, not a lot of deployments were going on. He goes, now, take all you people that have been to Iraq, take what you know about Iraq. This is exactly what he said. He said, said, control, alt, delete that because Iraq ain't nothing like Afghanistan. It's a whole different war, whole different ball game. And how was it different? There was a lot more. So Iraq, you would get, you know, occasional RPG or pop shot unless you were, you know, on the highway of death or whatnot. 
but Afghanistan, I don't know. It was just different. Um, it, it just felt like the fighters were different because at that point, I mean, heck, I, we got in firefights with uh, the Afghani National Police and, you know, we got in firefights with everybody. <laughs> the, the the not just the police but the military their military i mean it was uh no is it, you this was this 10th mountain no this was this was out of uh, 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 an actual uh what was it it was a fueler unit a unit that all they did was fuel but they got tasked to run gun trucks in uh afghanistan to you know to do resupply missions and stuff like that and that's all we did was run gun truck platforms up and down uh rc east not safe uh no no did uh, you guys have private uh contractors providing security for no that was us no? we were that the we, we were the security you were it yep that, that was that was literally our mission we would come back you know we, we would go out on a mission we'd be gone for you know we'd hit we'd fob hop and you know drop off equipment and stuff like that and then go on to the next fob and then turn around and come back uh we were running out of ba- uh, bagram airfield and uh you know we'd always take pop shots and you know rpgs and ieds i mean heck um my buddy sam we were i can't even remember what town we were in but uh we had bird net over our, our you know our turrets like you know it was just like wiring with uh, camouflage netting over it so you know kind of keep the sun off of us and stuff like that he had an rpg i guess they didn't pull they didn't pull the pin off of it but he had an rpg <laughs> come in through his bird net bounced off his kevlar knocked him out went out and it exploded like I want to say about 100 meters out, but knocked them out. And they were like, and all we heard was gunner down over the comms. And we're like, what the heck? It was crazy because, and he still has the fin to this day because I still talk to him. He still has because it the way that it landed, it scraped the fin off from the RPG. So he had it. <laughs> I mean, he brought that home. Our commander wrote a memorandum and everything so he could bring it home because you know it's technically a war trophy, but um. It was just, uh, but most of us uh, out of, you know, our gun truck platforms, uh, there was a lot of, you know, prior infantry and, you know, prior Marines and a lot of combat, you know, associated MOSs is just, they moved to to the fuelers because they're, you know, their bodies were broken and they wanted, they still wanted to stay in the military and. Did you ever go on search, search and rescue missions? Um... The closest thing we did is we got, um, so I was there. I did not do any search and rescues. We did, uh, uh, recoveries. Um, we were getting ready to pull the black Hawk that got taken down. Um, when we took out, cause I was there for when, um, bin Laden, I was in country when bin Laden got taken out. Um, and then, uh, so in that black Hawk that got, down to there yes uh we were we were supposed to transport it through but something came up and they asked us not to and we were, okay when we lost the seals yeah um and then what, what else was there i was there when uh westboro baptist church was burning the quran and that caused all kinds of riots and because that made you know national news in afghanistan that you know americans are burning qurans and that's their you know their holy book and, and yeah, you know, in America, we have freedom of speech and stuff like that. You know, you burn a Bible or you burn a Quran, it's no big deal. You know, it's part of your First Amendment. But in Afghanistan, that's what they live by. Um, you know, that that's 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 their whole doctrine. That's what their government uh, at the time was, you know, pretty much based off of. And it was mostly, you know, 
uh, small time government, you know, not small time government, but like local elders and stuff like that, you know, community tribe uh, chiefs and stuff like that. Um, so every time we, you know, during that time, every time we drove through a town or a village or something like that, we were getting rock stone at us and pop shots all because, you know, people in America were exercising the first amendment and we're like, I mean, you're over here killing Americans. We don't care. I mean, we care that you're killing Americans, but we're not out here just slaughtering everybody. You know, we're not, we're not here throwing rocks at you because, you know, you're killing Americans. I don't know if you're killing an American. I'm not burning Quran. That's just how America works. You know, we have those rights and those liberties and those freedoms. So you get to see, you know, being in places like that, how important, you know, our freedoms are. Yeah. Because there, if uh, you spoke up, you know, if they, if they, you know, the locals spoke up against the Taliban, you would find a dead body on the road the next day. Uh, and you saw all kinds of weird stuff. Um, let's see, we were going to a, a fob called uh, Fob Kill a Guy. It was ran by the Germans. It was uh, it was an RC North, and you had to go through this really, really long tunnel that always got backed up because they. There's no traffic laws, and they don't really... They just kind of go wherever they want. And uh, so we had... Uh, we had in, in order to go through this, I think it was like a four or five mile long tunnel. It wasn't that long. You were driving tanker trucks? Or no, we were driving uh, MRAPs. Uh, so, you know, uh, you know, mine-resistant vehicles and stuff like that. And uh, so it would, it would be this whole ordeal to go through one of these tunnels. And it would, you know, four or five mile long tunnel... It would take five, six hours because of how they drive. They were, you know, because we only go at set speed, and they would try to get around us and end up in accidents and cause the traffic on one side. And because traffic's backed up on this side, they try to come, they go around it in the, the oncoming lane, and they don't care. And it was a pain in the butt <laughs> to make it through a tunnel. Um, but we got, on, we were doing security on the other side of the tunnel, waiting for our convoy to come through, and. uh uh, a guy came up uh, saying, hey, he needed to get through the tunnel. We weren't letting anybody through the tunnel at the time, uh, you know, to, to alleviate traffic because it was backed up inside the tunnel. And uh, he's like, oh, my wife, she 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 needs hospital. She needs hospital. I'm like, OK, OK. So, we, I, you know, we got out and went over to his car and, uh, and his wife, he, she looks sick. And, and, you know, when, you know, we always do, you know. When we're approaching a vehicle, we always, you know, fan out and make sure that there's no suspicious, you know, wirings hanging underneath it and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, that he's just trying to lure us in to blow us up. So as we're we're doing our approach, and one one of uh, the soldiers walks around back, and there's an arm hanging out the trunk. And we're like, "Sir, what is what is this?" And we got our trip over. And we're like, "What is this?" And he goes, "Oh, nothing." He opens the trunk up just a little bit, shoves the arm back in, and closes it again. <laughs> we're like. <laughs> Come to find out, it was his, um, I think it was his brother that died. And he was just, while he was taking his wife to the hospital, he was going to take his brother to the morgue or bury him or or do the the whatever they do, you know, where they, they do the, the purification of the skin and the body and then wrap him in the cloth and then throw him in the dirt. Uh, I don't know. It was, yeah. <laughs> what, what was the worst situation you ever faced on the on your tours over there? There was a couple of them. Um, I can tell you the scariest one. All right. Um, so in 2003, we were we were, we had to go and uh, clear 
uh, Baghdad International Airport, you know, make sure that there was no mines and stuff, and, but which, you know, we knew that there was going to be, and we had to clear it, you know, with sticks. And, you know, all right, step, poke, step, poke. And that, that was probably the, the scariest, um, most difficult. Uh, so we were transporting in Afghanistan, we were transporting, you know, uh, hallucination trucks. You know, there were truckers that from, you know, Afghanistan, and, you know, they, they volunteered to work for us so they can get paid by, you know, driving rigs and stuff like that. And, you know, hauling our equipment and stuff. And we, that was what we were secure. That, that was, we were the security for those. And, uh, one, let's see, we were, I can't even think of the name of the town, but we were, it was daytime and we only had a couple trucks with us. Um, you know, a couple of host nation trucks. I mean, we always ran with five gun trucks, but, uh, I think we only had like 12 or 13 host nation trucks with us. And that was a small convoy for us. And uh, we were going through this town, which always had a tight turn. Like, right, so you had kind of a little bit of buildings on the left as you're starting to come into the town. Then you had an open field on the right, and you had a big old cliff on the left as well behind the buildings. And then uh, inside the town, you come in, and you've got buildings, and then you come around, and there's a bend. Um, and there was a truck, uh, another truck, you know, a, a semi-truck parked in the middle of the road stopping our convoy. So, you know, I'm, I was a uh, second to last vehicle and then trail or our last truck. Um, we were out in the, you know, out in the open, out in the field and they were starting to get, you know, taking pop shots from inside the, the little village. And we're like, what the heck was going on? And they started, you know, contact left, contact right. And then all of a sudden we started seeing, you know, we start hearing RPGs and mortars coming at us and taking pop shots and we're Sitting ducks. Yeah. So, you know, and, you know, that's 50 cows, 240s, and 249s. That's when you start firing those up. So, you know, that was, that was a long gunfight. Because, <laughs> because we had to, we had to, you know, get the truck that was stopping our convoy. We had to get out, you know, and move that truck. And then, uh, so we can continue, you know, moving through. But in order to do that, we had to, you know, take out the opposition forces. And it was crazy. You probably stay in touch with a lot of the guys that you served with uh, over there. Yes. Um, Thanks to modern technology, you know. Everybody accounted for it. Yep. Uh, you know, like my buddy Kevin out in California, my buddy Dave out in Detroit, um, you know, uh, you know, all the ones that, you know, you lose to PTSD because that, that happens a lot. That was another question for you. Just describe your experiences with guys who were affected by that. And, and were you affected by that at any stage? So I was, but not to, you know, a significant extent. Um, mine was, you know, how loud when I first came back from any deployment, you know, loud booms and uh, fireworks. I couldn't really be around and stuff like that. But, you know, I never had the flashbacks and stuff like that. Uh, it, so I got lucky. It didn't affect me as bad as it affected a couple others. My buddy, John, who I knew from the Marine Corps, but also met up again in 2010 when I was in the army and back in, in Iraq. And he was, he joined the army reserves and was on deployment in Iraq. And, you know, right as he was leaving, I met up with him again and I was like, Hey, what's going on? Um, he left a month before me and, uh, before I got back. Uh, he committed suicide by cop in the state of Washington. You know, acted like he had a gun on him and the cops were forced to shoot him. 
Um, and then I, uh, Afghanistan, my buddy Trent, who was my roommate, we were, you know, my roommate in Afghanistan, um, you know, we, we were in the same gun truck platform and, you know, went on all the missions together and stuff like that. And we were really close. Um, and, uh, we got back, he, uh, we'd been back for about four months and he came down on orders to go to Washington state, you know, go to Washington. And, uh, he was there, he had just checked into his unit and he committed suicide by cop. So why by cop? I don't, so he was, he was, that one, that one was, I read a lot of reports on that one and that one. I don't know. There's there's something fishy about that one uh, because he was hammered. He didn't have a gun. He didn't even act like. Oh, from the reports that I read, he didn't act like he was. But they they still call it suicide by cop. But he was. I mean, Afghanistan was that was probably the uh, the Iraq push in 2003 and the Afghanistan tour. Those were probably my two hardest tours. Um, but I don't know. I don't. Trent, I'm not sure, you know, what happened. And, you know, I wasn't, and that was, you know, my second friend that was suicide by cop in the state of Washington. So, so now my sister and my brother-in-law are stationed there and I'm like, "Uh," (laughs) kind of a little worried about it because he's, but he's Navy. He's about to retire as well. So any good stories you can think of that you haven't told me yet? Uh, so <laughs> when I told you about that school that we were digging up, uh, we had this kid. So because we, you know, it was a first Marine division and second Marine division, you know, joint operation, uh, we had, you know, people from first Marine division, you know, fall in with us, you know, and, uh, you know, to boost our numbers and stuff like that. So we can, you know, move out as a unit. And we had this kid from California. Um, and in order to use the bathroom out there, when you had to go, you know, number two, you dug a hole. And we had these ammo boxes that, you know, they're, they're wooden and, you know, we would always put, you know, we would tape styrofoam around them so they'd be easier to sit on. And, um, and, you know, our E5 had one and he was like, make sure you bring it back, you know, always. And you you had to give him collateral, like a pack of cigarettes or something like that. And, um, we were at that school and he he was out in the middle of the open field because by then, you know, we, we weren't shy around each other anymore. Um, he dug his hole and he put it there and, you know, he's got his rifle in his hand and. You know, we're all watching because, you know, you're supposed to have, uh, you know, security around you even when you're doing that. Um, and uh, all of a sudden this pack of dogs, you know, start coming over. Wild dogs. And uh, we're getting ready to go. My E5's like, no, 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 no. This is going to be good. <laughs> <laughs> so he he, start, he he didn't notice until they started barking at him. And they were running straight at him. And uh <laughs> So he goes, so he, he looks, he starts freaking out and he's got, he's got his pants around his ankles. So he's standing up trying to run with his pants around his ankles, trying to pull his pants up and he's got his rifle behind his back and he's trying to, he's like, ah, he's screaming and he, he starts shooting at the dogs with his pants around his ankles and my E5 goes, boy, you better come back with my shitter. <laughs> we were dying laughing. <laughs> <laughs> like that was the first thing on his mind. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's actually one of my favorite stories to tell. So, <laughs> one of those things you never forget because, yeah, the situation sucked because it was hot. 
you, but um, as time goes on, you forget about the bad stuff. Yeah. And you remember the funny stuff, the good stuff. Yeah. Uh, your friends, uh, the memories that you made, because you, you, we're all in the suck, you know. Heck, in Diwania, when, you know, after the war was over, you know, we had, uh, everybody was, you know, there's certain stuff that we couldn't bring back. And, you know, they're like, you know, they were giving away, you know, camouflage netting. So we took everybody's camouflage netting. We made this big old fortress um, out there, you know, just just out of camouflage netting. And they had these big old sandbags. They're like this. And, you know, they said, if you want to film, you can have them because we were there for like two or three weeks. So, you know, we were bored, didn't have anything to do. So we filled the sandbags, we turned, you know, we had the camouflage netting up and, you know, we had the, the sandbags and those were our chairs and our beds and our benches and tables. And cause like I said, we were bored and, you know, we had, you know, and, uh, you could buy, um, uh, glass bottle, uh, sodas, you know, from the locals and stuff like that. And then, uh, so we had, you know, magazines that, you know, didn't have any ammo in it, you know, hanging on strings you know, down from the the camel netting because that was our bottle openers. <laughs> I mean, we had a little radio that we bought from the PX for like sixty bucks. I mean, it was a tiny little radio, but you know, we had like five CDs. <laughs> Good times, though. You know, in a lot of cases, the news that we get back here in the states when there's when our military is heavily involved overseas, we don't always get the same. We get filtered news. Yes. Um, when you when you got back and you started talking with friends and relatives who were back in the states after one of your tours, did you find out that there was a lot that they didn't know? Yes. Or that they got wrong. Yes. About what was uh, but going that on was, there. That was because there was you know especially you know especially in '03, there was a lot of stuff you know that we weren't allowed to talk about once we got back. It still hasn't been declassified. Um, uh, the you know the, the burning oil fields they you know they 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 had some knowledge of it but they didn't know how bad it was or um, the burn pits or uh, you know what we call flaming diesel poo because you know once once you got set up you know, a, you know you started to build a fob and whatnot you had you know fifty five gallon drums that were cut in half and they filled up with diesel fuel and that's where everybody went to the bathroom in. And then uh, in the morning and in the evening, you would go out there, you would pull the bins out, the 55-gallon drums out, you would light them on fire and stir them. Evidently, that was bad for us. Didn't know it. Um, but because of it now, you know, a lot of people are uh, they're on, you know, uh, lists and stuff like that for, like, burn pit lists and stuff like that. But nobody, you know, that's, you know, well, how did you do that? Or why did you do this? What what was the what was the problem with the burn pits? Was it uh, no? It was bad for your lungs. Bad for your lungs. Okay. Yes, um, because because of that, a lot of us from O three are automatically on a burn pit list. Um, uh, which was so e sort of like Agent Orange. Not much yes. was talked about Agent yes. Orange in Vietnam, but yes. yet afterwards, yes, you know, it became a deal. Uh, in fact, uh, I have a buddy that you know at my current job. That he was in Nam, and you know he's he's all messed up from Agent Orange, and we were talking about some of that stuff. But when I came back from Iraq in '03, that was the best feeling I had ever had in my life. Um, they found out that we were coming back, and that you know um, motorcycle gang groups were escorting us back from the airfield to you know Camp Lejeune, and you know there was parades, there was cops escorting us, you know people waving on the road, and. 
you know, people proud that you were in the military. And whenever you walked into an airport, you know, during that time, you know, and people, someone found out that you were, you know, uh, you know, soldier, you know, in the military, you know, so much respect because our military is volunteer. It's all a hundred percent volunteer. And so every one of us that, you know, went over volunteered to do it. And, uh, now it's getting to the point where they respect us, but they forget why they, they it's been 19 years since nine 11. Well, coming up on 19 years. And uh, those that said that they would never forget, forgot. And because of it, the, you know, the military is just kind of on the back burner. You know, they don't, even though, you know, we are the world's most advanced fighting force. You know, we're just, you know, oh, it's the military, the military, you know. Okay, whatever. But most of us don't do it for, you know, glory or honor or anything like that. I did it because, you know, I'd. I joined the military because it's the only way I saw out of my town. And a lot of us are like that. Most people don't even know that. But I, I think the the respect is still there for the most part. But it's starting to, I don't know. It's, I've, I've seen videos and stuff like that on, you know, on the internet of, you know, oh, just because you're in the military and they disrespect them. And just because they're in the military, like uh, now, especially now with what's going on, you know, with the National Guard being deployed to certain areas and stuff like that. Um, and people viewing the military as racist. And I'm like, mm, race has nothing to do with the military at all. Like literally, every what we see is green. Do you get sad when you see this stuff going on on I television do. with these with uh, the flags, uh, with the people uh, breaking into stores and, and yes. torching towns yes. and yes. cities and pulling down statues and yes. pretty much trying to erase our American heritage? So the funny thing is, and what they'll never, and what the mainstream media doesn't tell you, is it's Democrats, you know, pulling down Democratic statues, and they don't even realize it because they weren't taught that. And I'm from California, which is heavily Democratic. And I was taught that. You know, California does not have the best, well, schools. I can tell you that right now. They don't. And uh, I could still, I'm, I'm like, Andrew, they're like, oh, we got to pull down Andrew Jackson. You know, he, okay, whatever. Oh, we got to rename Fort Lee. You know, Robert E. Lee was, was actually a good guy. He didn't own slaves. In fact, he was an abolitionist, but he couldn't raise his sword against his state, his home state of Virginia. Exactly. Yeah, they wanted to be a Union general, but mm -hmm. he said, "I'm from." And Virginia, he wasn't. He I, was an abolitionist. I can't give up my state. Yep. He said he could. He he said that in no scenario could he raise his sword against the state of Virginia, because back then, um, it wasn't you know loyalty to you know the country. It was loyalty to your state, and that's just how it was. It wasn't that he was forced slavery. In fact, he was actually completely against it i mean these people today who are out there rioting call themselves patriots but they're not they're not patriots at all they don't and i wonder how many would benefit by going in the military do you believe you believe there should be a forced no uh nope i do not nope. I, the reason why is mandatory two years i do not um military doesn't fix everything it's, that's not the job to fix everything. The job of the military is to fight and win wars. That is it. It's not to 
fix your problems. It's not to be. It's not to be a. It's not a social agency. Exactly. It's it's not to uh, test out new social projects like they did, you know, in previous administrations. Um, you know, pre- previous presidential administrations. That's. We don't care if you're gay or straight. Don't care. We don't care. You know what color your skin is. Don't care. We don't care who you pray to, or if you pray at all. Don't care. Only thing we care about is when you know when our lives are on the line. When we're in a firefight, when we're in the fighting hole, if you have my back, that's the only thing we care about. Don't care if you're man or woman. You got my back because the one of the baddest gunners I know was a female. Because uh, during that the the firefight I told you about in Afghanistan, you know the one that that was probably the longest. The gunner in the the trail truck, in the truck behind me, he froze. And we're in the middle of a firefight. So the the assistant gunner, she reached up, grabbed the the lanyard, and he fell on his butt. She pushed him over to the other seat, and she jumped up there, and she started rocking and rolling. So, like I said, it doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is, you know, if you have your buddies back. That's the only thing that matters in the military. It isn't... You know, it isn't this big social party or nothing like that. I mean, granted, military drinks a lot. And we are very, we are social butterflies. Because that's just how we are. You know, when we go into a port, it's what we do. But the military is not, you know, some some testing ground. And so I don't think, you know, just because, you know, everybody's like, oh, like, you know, with South Korea does. South Korea... I think you have to spend two or four years in the Rock Army, the, and it's mandatory. But the, I think the longevity and the value of the soldiers just kind of goes down because everybody's just forced to be there. It's, you're not you're not there because you want to be. You're not there because you're striving. You know because you're striving to be there. You're there because you're forced to. And I, I think that would one greatly diminish the morale of the military, and two just overall bring down the performance of the military. But that's just my personal opinion on it. Well, Bobby Randall, thank you very much for giving us your time today. We appreciate it, and we appreciate your your, your memories and throwing some good light uh, on our military. And thank you for your service. Thank you, John. Thank you for having me. And uh, if you hopefully we can do this again. This was fun. I agree. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you, John. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries for this first installment of Veterans Forum. If you liked it, please let us know in a review or by emailing us at 1001storiespodcast at gmail.com. That email again is 1001storiespodcast at gmail.com. And tell us what you think, and let us know if you'd like to be interviewed. Meanwhile, thanks for listening and for sharing our show with others. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and we'll be back with a new episode next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.